Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to another episode of your own personal Beatles. I am Jack Pelling. And I am Robin Allen. And today we've got an unbelievable guest on the show. We're going to be chatting a little bit later on to the writer and screenwriter and all-round great guy, John Ronson, which is really exciting. Uh, he's a massive Beatles fan and got uh, lots of interesting things to talk about, including, well, his personal Beatles, his uh, formative memories. We talk a bit about Paul is Dead. We talk a bit about, you know, conspiracy theories in general. And, yeah, as fascinating stuff as you would expect. There are so many interesting things we could have talked about with John Ronson. Obviously, he wanted to talk about Paul is dead and the kind of the way that seemed to pave the way for a lot of conspiracy thinking and things. But then we were, there was also a way we could have talked about, you know, John Lennon, his kind of complex legacy as well in terms mm. of his writing about, you know, public shaming, etc. And then, you know, he's obviously written about outsider art as well. So we ended up talking about outsider art a lot, which isn't very Beatlesy, admittedly, but it was a very interesting <laughs> chat. So, yeah, it was yeah. Good, good to have a, just a, a kind of quite rambly chat with him. Yeah, I mean, we could have talked for hours, and there is one of the great rock and roll anecdotes in there towards yes, the end as well. Good. So yeah. look out for that. But before we get on with the show, how's your week been, Robin? All it's, good? It's been pretty good, yeah. This week, I sort of take, took a deep dive into Strawberry Fields forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you remember in May Martin, he said, I was saying, like, I never worked it out on the guitar. Yeah, yeah. So um, this week, I worked it out on the guitar. Uh, and it's mad. I've got my guitar here. Mm, please. Um, so it's Go really interesting guitar. because... Sorry, I feel like David Brent now. Yeah. <laughs> so I listened back to the kind of the very first demo, which is yeah. on Anthology 2. Mm. And he's playing it quite like a finger-picking song, which is really, really interesting. Because mm. it sounds kind of much more folky. Yeah. And he plays it kind of with these chords like... Like this. And then when it got into the studio, it's kind of Paul came up with the Mellotron arrangement and it yeah. went much more kind of major 70. You know, very yeah. different feel. Yeah, completely different. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I, th- I always forget that it's written on guitar. And then when yes. you play it like that, that makes perfect sense because it doesn't, when you think about and it's a slightly different key as well because it's been sort yeah, of sped I mean, up and I'm slowed playing down. it in D because I've got my voices extremely limited but yeah um, i think he wrote it in c and then it was might have been played in a but then by the time it was very sped it would change to a sharp or something yeah i, th- I think it's quite close to f isn't it yeah or maybe that's the way that it was originally played if you look yeah. at the wikipedia page there's a very interesting thing because it's his most unorthodox song musically yeah yeah, yeah so it's definitely. kind of hard one of those ones where it's hard to work out what is the home key because kind of as the lyrics suggest you kind of do get a bit lost in the melodic yeah. world of it and everything. But the mad thing about the chords as well, working out the chords, is it's the... Nothing, strawberry fields. And then it goes to this chord. Which is like yeah. you're singing a G over an F-sharp 7th, which is so dissonant, it's insane. It's actually hard to sing it. Way, way. I mean, such a departure as well from what is relatively like, harmonically conservative. Yeah. Um, in Rub Soul and, and definitely, I mean, and stuff. it's so similar thematically to In My Life, but it's so such a kind of progression melodically and kind of. Um, yeah. The great thing about it as well is I was thinking about how. You know, I read that quote last week from Electric Eden mm-hmm, about yeah. the idea that Strawberry Field kind of birthed loads of distinct genres. Mm. And one of the kind of genres I think I can hear in Strawberry Fields is ambient. Because yeah. when I listen to Strawberry Fields, it, I, I find it so kind of atmospheric that I kind of... It's one of those songs you almost forget you're listening to because you get so immersed in that world. 
and particularly in the first minute or so, which is, you know, the original version before it goes into the more drum-based version. It's such a kind of tranquil zone that you almost kind of drift off and it has almost the effect of ambient music where you kind of don't, you know, you're you're listening and not listening at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Something. Well, that's what I love. And then you sort of get jolted awake by those cacophonous drum fills. Yeah, it kind of needs to be tempo and yeah. It was such an incredible artistic decision to make that edit because it just it's like this subtle kind of... Well, it's not subtle if you know about it, but, I mean, did you notice it before you read about it, that edit between the two takes? Um, I noticed it I, definitely from um, the, the pitch rather than, like, right. noticing the splicing or whatever. Yeah. But I think probably with being young and playing along to it on the guitar and then wondering why I was suddenly out of tune. Yeah, it does go... <laughs> it does drift a bit. Yeah. Well, it's, so, it's so Lennon, the first way you play it, like... Yeah. Slightly desperate minor chords that aren't really. Yeah, it's quite key. Bob Dylan y as well. Yes, actually. yeah, definitely. Not a million miles away from Lay, Lay, Delay or something. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. It's just been a reminder of how kind of powerful that song is, really. Working it out and seeing those kind of mad chords and things. It's just been. I've really enjoyed that this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it is. We've had a few people sort of say what their quintessential Beatles song is, if such a thing exists which it definitely doesn't yeah but um I, if i had a gun to my head i think strawberry fields would be the one yeah yeah and we recorded our first uh, irl podcast this week which was really good fun yes that was brilliant i properly got around the table and recorded a great episode which will be coming soon so that was nice a few and then we went drunk. to the pub afterwards and they played a bit of beatles in the pub yeah ballad of john and yoko yeah <laughs> so is, there you go that was good we're being followed around by it. <laughs> we got some lovely correspondence this week, as usual. So thank you so much for uh, writing in and sharing some of your personal Beatles stories with us. Um, you can get in touch with the show um, by emailing me, jack at homespunsounds.com, or you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. But um, yeah, we just thought we'd read up uh, a couple of uh, really nice ones. And I'm really sorry to everyone that emailed in. We don't have time, but uh, we got to crack on with the show. But um a guy called Alex Blackburn wrote in with a nice email saying uh, he's been really enjoying the pod. And there's been a lot of chat about Beatles so- solo work, and he just wondered if he'd come across the Black Album from the film Boyhood. Yes, I have. It's one of uh, my favourite films of recent years. And there is a fantastic bit in it, if you have seen that film, where Ethan Hawke presents his son. Um, if you don't know the sort of premise of Richard Linklater's Boyhood, it, uh, it's sort of filmed over a decade and a half and you see all the actors, actors child actors, sort of um, age in real time and stuff. And there's a very touching moment where Ethan Hawke's character gives his son Mason a sort of handmade copy of the Black Album, which is basically a compilation of all of the best Beatles solo stuff to create one more record that, um, you know, what would what would have the record after Abbey Road might have sounded like. Yeah. Um, and he's highlighted one um, particular passage in there in one of the letters that I think that this whole thing was based on an actual letter that um, Ethan Hawke wrote to his his real daughter. And he describes the, um, you know, the, the inter-Beatle relationship in a brilliant way here. He says, uh, there's this thing that happens when you listen to too much of the solo stuff separately. Too much Lennon, suddenly there's a little too much self-involvement in the room. Too much Paul and it can become sentimental, let's face it, borderline goofy. Too much George, I mean, we all have a spiritual side, but there's, that's only interesting for about six minutes, you know? <laughs> Ringo, he's funny, irreverent and cool, but he can't sing. He had a bunch of hits in the 70s, even more than Lennon, but you aren't going to go home and crank up a Ringo Starr album start to finish. You're just not going to do it. When you mix up their work, though, when you put them side by side and let them flow, they elevate each other and you start to hear it. The Beatles. That's brilliant. Is there actually a track listing for the Black Album then, or is it? There is, yeah. yeah. So I think he wrote an article on BuzzFeed shortly after uh, okay, the, cool. the um, it came out, which we'll post in the description nice. if you want to it, read it. It doesn't and have junk on it. It must have junk on it. Well, my only uh, sort of qualm with that is that it's a four-disc album. Oh right, right. Which right, I right. think is That's cheating in the exercise yeah, of yeah. picking. You know, I mean, I suppose you're allowed a double album, but yeah. four CDs is too much. That's, then, yeah, come on. Also, you're thinking of a lot of Ringo stuff that you definitely wouldn't put on. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much for sending that in. Cheers. 
I've got a really nice email here, um, which is from Ed Williams. And he said, Dear Jack and Robin, just wanted to email you to say how fantastic the podcast is and how much I'm enjoying it. Stop I, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to share a personal Beatles story with you about a missed opportunity. My father-in-law, Robert, worked for the BBC as a camera operator for about 40 years. In the early 60s, as a young man, he went into work on his day off and ended up sitting in one of the studios watching a band rehearse but had no idea who they were. Obviously, it was the Beatles, and to this day, I'm still unsure how he didn't know it was them. But so many people would have given to have been in his position. When he spoke to his wife, Jenny, later that day, she realised who it was and was fairly annoyed that he hadn't at least tried to get their autographs. This came up in his Father of the Bride speech many years later when I got married to his daughter, Vicky, with a spurious link to my own time in a heavily influenced in a heavily Beatles-influenced band while studying in Liverpool, where we did play at the Cavern on a couple of occasions. Cool. That's really nice. Uh, keep That's up the good work, he says. So, yeah, thanks very much, Ed. That's a really lovely... Uh, <laughs> That's great. My dad was once on a train with the Hollies. Uh, but he was too really? shy to say anything, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's quite cool. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much to the other people that we don't have time to read out. We've got lovely emails from uh, Adam and Ian and David. Um, we really appreciate them and we do um, read them all and try and get back to everyone. But uh, obviously we're a bit pushed for time and people want to hear John Runson. So we'll crack on with the show. So you can follow the show on social media, as always, at Personal Beatles. We're on Facebook and Twitter on Instagram. And if you enjoy the show, please do give us a nice five-star rating as lots of kind people have done this week. We really appreciate it and it really helps grow the audience and uh, helps people find the show. So if you yeah. listen on Apple Podcasts or Acast, that is much appreciated. Um, and if you do want to give us something back and help support the show and help us cover some of the costs of it, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash donate and give whatever you can. Um, and we do have a couple more, um, I think literally a couple more of our very snazzy Beatles mugs left. So if you'd like one of them, um, do message us on one of our social media accounts and we'll let you know how we can get one over to you enjoy the show so this week robin and i are absolutely delighted to have joining us uh writer and screenwriter and raconteur and one of my heroes actually john ronson hello hello how's it going john raconteur sets the bar high <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to free form podcast conversations yeah. but, I'll do, but i'll do my best how are you both doing yeah good yeah really good thank you yeah how's your how's your lockdown been fine i mean i i'm in, I, i'm just you know i feel guiltily fortunate we're, we're in a little <laughs> village in upstate new york and so it really hasn't been a a burden for us and which means you know i forget how much of a huge burden it is for so many people um yeah we're, we're very lucky um so and you're you're a big beatles fan and i saw you reading craig brown's new book the other day which uh, is absolutely i am fantastic. i have it right here yeah i've been spending much of the lockdown reading craig brown's wonderful book it's brilliant it's great. I love how short the chapters are. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? It's just great. You can just really whiz through it. It's so, it's so entertaining. I, I love the brilliant chapter about Paul just randomly ending up in some pub and playing Lady Madonna to all the people there. <laughs> Have you read that bit? I, well, I've, I'm on page um, 580 of... Uh, so actually, I don't think I'm of, of 642. I'm not, I'm not sure that Paul's done that yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> how far have I got? Well, he's just... I, I adore the book with one caveat, which is um, I don't love his relentlessly withering portrayal of Yoko. Right, yeah. Um, right. I'm at one of those chunks right now where, yeah. where Yoko's being kind of infantilised and... Yeah, mm. marked. Everybody else in the book comes over with such humanity, yeah. and Yoko, even even John, and uh, but Yoko, um, he's just decided he just thinks she's an idiot. I think I thought we'd kind of <laughs> moved past that kind of culturally to you know because it was such a thing at the time. But like yeah. Yoko Ono is so well, so well respected now, you know. Yeah, I think that's the book's one error 
Um, other, otherwise, I I just adore it. I, mm. the, the rabbit holes that he goes down, that he then encourages you to go down, yeah. the singing nun and <laughs> Jimmy Mickle and and, and 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 the old the old guy in the Hey Jude video who yeah. I never noticed until now, and now you can't unsee him. It's like, like that advert with the gorilla and the basketball yeah. players. Yeah, yeah. Now the Hey Jude video is only about the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the um you know the the young ones the extra housemate in the young ones have you do you know that Oh uh, yeah oh well, yeah yeah <laughs> there's heads sticking out of the bed once you once you notice her she's just like there all the time it's really, <laughs> that's, that's right <laughs> and so, did you read the Paul is dead chapter then in, in the... uh, yes I've yeah. just I've just got past the Paul is dead chapter I just thought it was fascinating well I think that that it sort of encapsulates why people get so obsessed with the Beatles. My, mm. my very first, uh, in preparation for this, I was reminiscing about my earliest encounters with the Beatles. And um, my very earliest encounter, I must have been three or four years old, and the Beatles songbook had just come out. And I don't know if you know, at the back of the Beatles songbook are all these sort of pop art representations of different Beatles songs. Oh, I, yeah. I'm not sure who the artist is, but anyway, for somehow, probably because of my mother um, telling me that all of these people had been murdered because of Beatles <laughs> songs, and um, and I sort of put two and two together and made five, and I remember being three or four years old and sitting in the spare room at our house in Cardiff, looking at these pop-out pictures at the back of the Beatles songbook and thinking that it was the pictures that had inspired <laughs> Charles Manson to kill right. Sharon Tate. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. so I was, um, you, you know, trying to decipher clues <laughs> from these pictures. So when it got to the Paul is Dead part, it didn't only remind me of QAnon. Mm. Uh, mm. It, it also right. reminded me of my own four-year-old self looking for yeah. clues and Beatles right. uh, mm. pictures and songs. And, and also, I, and as a result, I think it's probably no surprise that my favourite Beatles album throughout throughout my teenage years was the White Album, mm. which, mm. again, feels like an album of mystery and clues yeah, and yeah. snippets. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the QAnon thing, because, like, the Charles Manson conspiracies to do with the White Album are very much based mm-hmm. around a religious kind of interpretation of it, that the Beatles are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, etc. And uh, Yeah. And the QAnon's got a kind of... The language they use is kind of quite religious in some ways, maybe. Yeah. Both, yeah, and and in the end, maybe both are just maybe it's religion, but it's also amateur sleuthery. Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's it's Miss Marple. It's yeah, it's the same as chemtrails and yeah, yeah, yeah wanting to wanting to solve mysteries. Mm. Yeah. Um, of course, the other QAnon thing is that they think they're doing something incredibly moral mm. and important. For a British uh, audience that might not be that familiar with QAnon, can you just like briefly explain what it is? Sure. Okay, a few years ago, somebody who called themselves Q started posting on message boards claiming to have been... Um, claiming to be high up in the Trump administration or high up in intelligence or something, but, you know, high up in, in American, in the deep state. And um, this person was, was basically their message was that Trump was fighting a cabal of satanic paedophiles. So it incorporates Pizzagate, which was the idea mm. that, that Hillary Clinton had a secret dungeon where she would... Uh, abused children in the basement mm. of a pizza restaurant in Washington DC, yeah. uh, and but also at Epstein, and obviously that that mm. part of it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you look closely, Trump is giving out secrets, just like Paul is dead. You know, just mm. like Beatles giving secret mm. clues that Paul was dead. What's the reasoning behind why why they keep giving clues? Well, I mean, there's no logic, <laughs> right? I mean, there's, there's you know, like if Trump, uh, it's the same thing as as to why um, flag sources always tend to land in ambiguous ways. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or you know, like yeah. in like different cities, right? It's always. Uh, there's always someone in the desert. I, I read one Paul is Dead thing where they were talking about they wanted to give clues because they wanted to soften the blow that Paul was oh, dead. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, 
with QAnon, it's like if Trump wears a yellow tie mm. at a press conference, that's giving a, a, a some message about something. Right. It's to do with nautical mm. nautical flags, uh, <laughs> right? As if Trump would yeah. have his map, <laughs> would have his like nautical flag. Um, thing up on the wall and yeah. decide to wear a yellow tie for that reason. Well, so the biggest stretch for me is that Trump could conceivably do something morally <laughs> great <laughs> and not go on about it 24 hours a day. I know, right? I don't get the impression he's what he could keep a secret that big. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would hazard, by the way, that another reason for, um, for the Paul is dead thing, mm. uh, for, for the reason, it's not just the sleuthery and the yeah. religious aspect of it. Um, I wonder whether it's also the fact that, you know, we, we give the Beatles so much brilliance, like we, we bestow upon them such brilliance, mm. that we, start, we don't like it when they shout, something as banal as cranberry sauce mm. so we want mm. to play it backwards and yes, yeah. i bury yeah. paul because yeah. otherwise it's just a bit kind of shit <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah we put them in a place where we are we are scrutinizing them in such with such intense detail and like yeah. we think we said this before in another episode about the idea that the beatles history is kind of like this stations of the cross thing where every like the village fate is kind of such a takes on this unearthly significance and all these other events in the Beatles' lifeline yes. take on this incredible significance, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is not entirely unjustified, Yeah, I'd argue. I mean, they were, you know, they sort of lived up to, to the hype. And yeah. one of the interesting thing about how Paul is Dead started, and this is in the Craig Brown book, is the, the idea that someone who worked for the Beatles rang an American college radio station pretending to be Paul. Yeah, no, it it it, it predated that. Okay. So somebody said, you know, I've got these ideas about Paul, right? And um, and so they were out. The, so the rumours were out there a bit already. Yeah, yeah. And mm. then somebody, I think it was Derek Taylor or somebody, somebody mm. said to Paul, "You've got to say something." Yeah. You've got to like. And Paul was like, oh, I can't be bothered to do that. So then they got somebody in Paul's orbit yeah. to pretend to be Paul. To Which is kind of mistake number one if you're kind yeah. of dealing with conspiracy theories. You're really fanning the flames. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I think Paul was just, a, he was just a, his farm in Scotland. He didn't want to be bothered. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the, when they were actually forced to do the rebuttal a few years later, um, <laughs> just because the rumours wouldn't go away. And Derek Taylor released this press release that uh, says, Paul said, I'm alive and well and concerned about the rumours of my death, but if I were dead, I would be the last to know. <laughs> so he says, Paul refuses to say anything more than that. Even if he appeared in public, it wouldn't do any good. If people want to believe he's dead, then they'll believe it. The truth is not at all persuasive. Once mm. again, the denial was taken as proof positive of a cover-up. Yeah. Right. Which... Yeah. yeah, that seems quite prescient. There's another yeah. Paul, Paul interview where he sort of says on video, oh, you know, if you want to believe that, you can believe it, you know, in this very kind of beatily way, like believe what mm. you want to believe. And that's also kind of maybe that wasn't the best way to deal with yeah. it. You know? Looking back on it now, the fact that it was so exciting, the whole Paul is dead stuff, maybe mm. we should have anticipated that that kind of way of thinking would end up taking over the whole world. But I was thinking mm. that because what were any big conspiracy theories prior to that the 60s there must have been some ones uh, because that was yeah it really did seem to kind of pave the way for a lot of the way we think now i, I think you're right i think it was one of the very big ones i mean obviously mm. jfk yeah 63, mm, 63 but yeah. how long did it take i wonder for that to become a conspiracy theory i, mm, I don't yeah. i don't know about that yeah and then paul is dead i kind of sprung up around 68 didn't it yeah and then the moon mm. moon landings uh, the year after you, so. yeah <laughs> although i'm sure that the moon landed conspiracy theories were, were way later like yes, i don't remember yeah. Yeah, yeah. hearing those conspiracy theories till like the 80s or the 90s yeah, yeah. i think you're right i think paul is dead might be one of the first great mm. sort of international conspiracy theories yeah. that's really interesting <laughs> Yeah, and so much fun, so much more fun than, yeah. than the ones yeah, we have to yeah. deal with now. Do you have a um, Do you have a favourite one of the Paul is Dead ones? Uh, let me let me acquaint, let me reacquaint. <laughs> well, you're looking. Uh, my favourite one is the um, theory that the um, George Harrison at the end of While My Guitar Gently Weeps is 
moaning Paul, Paul, Paul. It's the most out of character thing right. that George Harrison could ever do. Right. I remember there, there was a bit, there's a part of Hey Jude, if you play it backwards, it's Paul saying, um, I'm a phony, I'm a phony, I'm a phony. <laughs> I lived um, six blocks away from the Dakota. Uh, for a oh, long really? time, wow. yeah. yeah. So I've I've had many, many, and I've been inside the Dakota. Wow! Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my friend, the human rights lawyer, Clive Stafford Smith. He has no money. He's like, um, I guess, in a way, he's like a sort of cult leader in that he has no money, and so he just <laughs> relies on the on the kindness of other people. Wow! Um, mm. And one of the kindnesses bestowed bestowed upon Clive when he's in New York is that a friend of his lets him stay. At his place at the Dakota. Wow! So oh, I've cool. so I've been inside the Dakota. Wow! Mm. Yeah, and my son um, had a friend who who had a really massive apartment in the Dakota, and says he saw he saw Yoko at one point in the wow. corridor when he was visiting. Wow! Yeah, yeah. it's quite a spooky <laughs> sort of place for me. I remember going to visit it and just feeling a little bit like like a sort of disaster tourist. And <laughs> why am I yeah. here? Isn't it horrible? Yes, I think you're right about that. I've always found it quite fascinating that John Lennon in, moved to New York to the biggest, buzz, most bustling city in the world to sort of recapture his anonymity. So as a yeah. sort of Englishman, well, a Welshman in New York, <laughs> what, um, is, that, is there a different sort of distance that you can keep from general people in New York City that you don't get in London? Ah. Well, I know fewer people in New York City than I do in London, and also, I'm, I mean, personally speaking, I'm um, I'm less well known in New York than I am in London. So, so I tend to just wander around by myself and sort of lose myself. There's a nice feeling about there's a nice there is a nice feeling of being just swallowed up in America, just lost mm. in America. It's such a huge yeah. place, and mm. I did I like I like being unmoored in America. Yeah. So the mm. unmoredness of it is is part of its appeal, I'd yeah. say. Whereas in London, yeah, you sort of always know where you are. I, I, I you know, I tend to, if I'm wandering around London, someone will usually come up to me like once or twice a day, and it, and so you sort of feel, you know, you're still you're always in your own skin. But mm. but in in America, you can be anyone and do mm. anything. I yeah. suppose you don't. Yeah. It's interesting where all of the Beatles ended up, actually, because they're so like quintessential to their character. Yes, like yeah. Ringo in LA with his nasal Californian A.M.s, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. George was in. Where was that big castle? He's gardening in Henley on Thames. Henley, that's right. Park. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, talking about New York. Have you read *The Lonely City* by Olivia Lang? Have you read that? I've read no. that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's a great book because I, I watched Frank recently, and Olivia oh. Lang in *The Lonely City*. She she wrote it in New York. She's had the similar feeling of being unmoored, I think, and it's a book about outsider artists, ah. among among other things. But uh, people like Henry Darger and people like that, the visual artist. Okay, no, I don't, I don't know him, um, mm. but certainly when I was writing Frank, I did, did, did a big dive, but into outside of our art, mm. but mainly musical, mainly yes, the, yeah. the Shags and Daniel Johnson, yeah. And, Captain Beefheart. Brilliant, yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, I love, yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but the Shags, <laughs> Frank Zappa said the Shags <laughs> album was the best album ever made, didn't he? Or the best pop album. He said it was better than the Beatles, didn't he? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. I, I don't, that's I that's mean, the link. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tom, Tom Waits was a huge Shags yeah. fan. And yeah. I mean, the Shags story, I will tell your listeners, it's quite a, um, it's a, it's a more horrific story than we want it to be. Right, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah the story yeah. that you want it to be is these sort of feral children who had never heard music mm. um, suddenly, you know, are told by their father that they have to create that. And their father had had a... They, they were like a religious family. They lived in the middle of nowhere. Mm. They weren't allowed to listen to music. Yeah. And then their father had a vision from God mm. and the vision was that his daughters were going to be the world's biggest girl group. Mm. And so he took them out of school and um, got them to rehearse you know, 10 hours a day. They couldn't go swimming. They had to rehearse. They just rehearsed and rehearsed until he declared them ready. 
and then they mm. all went off to a recording studio. This was in Massachusetts, I think, and uh, they recorded their album Philosophy of the World. Yeah. And if you've never heard music <laughs> and you have to create music yeah. from scratch, <laughs> what will it sound like? Yeah, it's incredible from that perspective because what, what when you first hear it, you think they're playing it wrong, but they're all playing it wrong together. You yes. know, and that's what's incredible. A bit like Trout Mask as well. It sounds like that. That this very tight version of yeah. um, abstraction. Oh, the rich people want what the poor people got, and the poor people want what the rich people got, and the skinny people want what the fat people got, and the fat people want what the skinny Yeah, but actually the story's a little darker than that because mm. the, the controlling and abusive nature of the father is sort of underplayed in the more romantic yeah. um, versions of the uh, of the story. Right, in, yeah. In fact, it was, a, it was abuse. Abuse, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he's yeah. kind of like a Joe Jackson... Yeah. Brian Wilson's dad kind of figure as well, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But there's... Um, have you ever been to... There's a brilliant outsider art um, museum in Lausanne in Switzerland... Oh, no, I haven't. It's fantastic. And I went there. Um, oh, is it the one with the really bad outsider art? It might, some of it's bad <laughs> and some of it's really good. It was, it's like, it's a huge mix. I mean, is okay. there such a thing as bad outsider art? I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's a picture of a couple of dogs. I'll try and find okay. it. Okay. There's a brilliant um, artist. I loved his paintings there. He's called Augustin Lesage. And it reminded me of him because he heard a voice from God that told him to paint. Uh-huh. And he paints these enormous, very detailed, patterned paintings, and they're always completely symmetrical. And right. um, he went into the art shop and asked for, you know, um, 10 inches of canvas or something. And he did a spinal tap and was given, you know, like 10 feet or something. <laughs> like right. that. And so he said, and then he was like, well, that's a message from God, too, that they have to be really big. <laughs> <laughs> and then so all his paintings are just massive. Um, and they're this kind of like bizarre almost looks like some kind of weird Where's Wally kind of thing, where it's just your eyes are just kind of ah. so confused by this detail and it's all perfectly symmetrical. It's very beautiful. But, I'd yeah. like to send you the picture of the two dogs, but I don't. Okay. I've just taken a screenshot. Is there, is there a little... Oh, there's a chat box. But can, you, can you describe it for us, this, the, the two dogs? Would you be willing to describe it when I send it to you? <laughs> okay. yeah. the, just to describe this picture, it looks like a... Um, a sort of King Charles Cavalier that's got a like Liberace's harmonica, yeah, for some reason or a mouth guard, maybe <laughs> <laughs> next to some sort of um monkey, or is well, it supposed to be another dog? It's another dog that looks a little bit like a kind of almond, quite coy. <laughs> Um, it's not a harmonica the dog's got in its mouth. It's uh, it's obviously some kind of dog oh, toy. Oh, wow. yeah, that is it. That's very <laughs> yeah. the dogs have got very intense expressions. Yeah, it's a very yeah. compelling picture. <laughs> yeah, it really is compelling. <laughs> Their eyes really follow you around the room. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a question. I've got a question for you. Have any of your guests so far met any Beatles? Yeah. Yes, we had uh, uh, Guy Chambers on uh, oh. a couple of weeks ago, who produces um, and Robbie. writes all Robbie Williams and stuff. Yeah. Mm. So he talked about um, going down to Paul's studio when they made a charity record together, and uh, mm. sort of telling Paul not to do it like that and do it like that, which sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but, My God. Um, no, we haven't. Uh, have you ever? Have you ever met a Beatle? No, I've never met a Beatle. I've met like other, I've, or, or certainly been in the vicinity of other. Mm. Sort of my great childhood musical heroes. Like yeah. I was in the same room as Bowie once, and mm. so on. But no, I never, never a Beatle. Well, because we talk a lot about whether you would actually want mm. to, or whether it would be the worst thing ever. Mm. But um, you've met my outside of the Beatles, my um, childhood musical hero, Randy Newman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've met Randy Newman a bunch of times actually. He is someone that I think. I wouldn't want to meet. No, he's not. He's he's great. He's just as you'd want him to be. He's he's funny and self-deprecating and thoughtful and neurotic and very open, like very sincere. Um, I asked him once why he wrote songs, and he said um, 
He said, it's how I judge myself and how I feel better. Wow. Uh, oh, so that's, that's just exact. That's exactly that's the kind why of sound we, bite you want. Yeah, yeah but also great. it's just, it's true. You know, I've, I've long had the eerie thought that every idea and every thought I've ever had has already been had by Randy Newman. I see <laughs> Randy Newman as my kind of um, intellectual doppelganger. Like mm. every yeah, time yeah. I've had an idea for a book... Um, or, or, you know, a story. It's like, oh, Randy Newman's already done that. Mm. Every time I've made a, you know, self-deprecating joke or, um, you know, my, my book about public shaming, mm. so you've been publicly mm. shamed. Um, I mean, Justine Sacco's story, The AIDS Tweet Woman, mm. is mm. really, I mean, that could be a Randy Newman song. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talking about public shaming book, I saw on Twitter you were kind of having you were defending it the other night because has it become a kind of touchstone for yeah. the alt right or people complaining about? I wasn't defending the book. Mm. Um, I was uh, a bunch of the people who liked the book the most were sort of free speech centrists. Mm. People mm. like people, the kind of people who signed that Harper's letter, right? Okay, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And whilst as people, I like them very much mm. and um, agree with some of the things that they write, mm. I, I just think it's kind of nuts for, mm. a, for a, um, a New York Times columnist with a big, loud voice, an agent provocateur, contrarian columnist, is just a very different kettle of fish to the stuff that I was writing about in my book, which yes, is yeah, a yeah. private individual who tells a silly joke that gets misconstrued mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then their life is destroyed uh, and it's a miscarriage of justice. Uh, I'm old enough to remember life yeah, before the internet and before the internet, contrarian columnists were fucking yelled at. It's, this mm-hmm. isn't a new phenomenon when it and it's particularly in Britain mm. um, where the adversarial system is so vicious I mean, I'm not a fan of it but it bugs me that 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 when they're criticized even if they're being screamed at by thousands of people mm. even if it, it's still a different kettle of fish uh, mm. to the kind of things I was writing about in my book and yes and, yeah. it, and it annoyed me a little that they were trying to equate the two. Do you think someone like John Lennon is untouchable when it comes to things like cancel culture? Because he's got some pretty sort of, maybe not skeletons, but, you know, there's some more unpleasant stuff Hmm. that uh, went on in terms of his misogyny and, um, you know, domestic violence. and things Yes, like mm. yeah, you're right. Has anyone gone there? Has anyone tried to...? Well, this is what we were sort of talking about the other day, um, that it seems like he's managed to get a... Well, I mean, it helps if he been dead for 40 years, but yeah. he's got a bit of a free pass in those things. Um, and he did sort of redeem himself and stuff, but you wonder whether he would ever have been given the chance to turn from the person that he wrote Run for Your Life to the mm. person who wrote, you know, Women is the N-word of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, part of the thing that I think that might have saved um, John Lennon was that the book where all of those things were first aired was the Albert Goldman book, right? Uh, the Lives of John mm. Lennon, mm. which was a terrible book. Mm. And, you know, Goldman came over, like, terribly, like, like mm. a little bit like, you know, the way Craig Brown depicts Yoko mm. 
mm. in in his otherwise wonderful book. Goldman just portrays John Lennon as the worst human mm. being who ever lived. So the fact that the messenger was so bad mm. probably <laughs> helped. Probably yeah. helped John Lennon. How do you think John Lennon, what do you think a kind of a character he would be now? Because, I, I, do you know, are you actually, mm. Sean Lennon has become slightly moved into this territory we talked about, where he's mm. uh, talking about worrying about free speech. I think he might be a fan of Jordan Peterson, so don't quote me on that. But do you, do, oh. I have a theory that John Lennon might have gone kind of quite full-blown Alex Jones-style kind of... <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a that's a that's not an unreasonable <laughs> yeah. supposition. I mean, he was he wouldn't have been. I don't think he would have been a fan of um, Twitter cancel culture and Twitter shamings mm. and so on. Mm. Has Paul ever uh, commented or Ringo? I don't think so. No. no, I don't think so. There was, I mean, they, they've kind of defended him and said that it wasn't all you know, um, you know, rosy and stuff, and that mm. he did have a slightly more sort of tortured um, side to his character. But the general consensus that was that by the sort of mid-70s after his sort of decoder-building, bread-baking days that he had sort of let go of a lot of the sort of reasons anger. why he was uh, so, yeah, so sort of contorted by anger and that yeah. he was incredibly mellow and mm. that made up with everyone kind of before he died, which made it all the more kind of tragic, really. Mm. Yes. I mean, the fact that he, you know, stayed home for how many years uh, shows that he needed, presumably, mm. that to happen. He was probably in a real state mm. when the Beatles split up. Yeah, he was taking heroin. Mm. Uh, everything had been lost. It, you know, him and Paul hated each other and... He was the most famous person in the world. And, you know, he, he was probably in a real state. I can completely mm. understand why he'd want to just stay home and bake bread for several years. <laughs> yeah. When I was younger, I would have thought, and in fact, I remember myself thinking, yeah, why would John Lennon want to, want to squander all the adventures yeah. he could have had mm. for just staying in and breaking bread? I, that that's not a mystery to me anymore. I, <laughs> I, can, I can eat sleep, yeah, spend the rest yeah. of my life never leaving these forms. <laughs> Were you always a John person when you grew up as a young Beatle fan, or did you have a sort of journey around the four of them? No, I think I was always a John person, and, mm. and George. I was a John and George person. Mm. However, because uh, Craig Brown devotes so much time in his book to Hey Jude... Mm -hmm. uh, so much time that I think he's basically saying, "Hey Jude," was the was the Everest peak of the yeah. Beatles. I went back and watched "Hey Jude" a few times recently, and I think I might agree with Craig Brown. And I, I think I think maybe um, it was a Paul song which epitomises mm. the Beatles at their absolute best. I think we all, many of us, were into John and George. Mm -hmm. But actually, maybe some of the, maybe we were doing Paul a little bit of a disservice. I think yeah. maybe the best Beatles songs might have been Paul songs. Mm. Hey Jude, Blackbird. Um, Let It Be. Let It Be, yeah. yeah. Mm. And then what was John? And then John was doing that fucking I Dig a Pony. Although that yeah. was really <laughs> a guess because I have no idea whether John wrote I Dig a Pony. No, that's very too, much yeah. one of his, like, yeah. nonsense songs that was uh, penned off in, you know, half an hour before they had to record it. Yeah. I think yeah. his work ethic sort of went down the toilet when he got addicted <laughs> to heroin, which will happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all the cool people want to, want, you know, want to think of John Lennon's being the best Beatle. Yeah. But actually, maybe if you really go back into it, it was, it was Paul. I think Paul has, has really been reassessed in recent years. And one yeah. of the things I found interesting about doing this podcast is that I thought it was quite a sort of... Liking Paul was like sort of having Roger Moore as your favourite Bond and it was sort of a bit yeah. uncool. But um, actually, as you get older, you become more and more sort of uh, okay to just be uncool. And Yeah. I think the moment that really, um, that really made me shift was when I was reading the Craig Brown book is this story about how the Rolling Stones had, um, was, were having this party for the Beggar's Banquet album 
Um, Paul turned up and they'd just finished recording Hey Jude that day. So, uh, and it was like a listening party for Beggar's Banquet. So when Beggar's Banquet was finished, Paul put on, you know, the nude. Hey, does anyone <laughs> want to hear the new Beatles song? <laughs> I said, and put on, and apparently re- I'd put on Hey Jude. And, and there's quotes from people who were at the party, I think Marianne Faithful and whoever, um, saying, you know, nobody had ever heard the song before. We j- and it was such a moment mm, of us yeah. all standing there listening to Hey Jude. So I then went and re-listened to Hey Jude and tried to imagine myself being at that Beggar's Banquet party yeah, wow. and thinking, yes, I think, God, can you imagine hearing yeah. this song for the first time in this set of circumstances? Yeah. And apparently Mick Jagger was really pissed off. He'd felt yeah, like it's, it's a bit of a dick move, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a dick move. And, and, and Mick Jagger went up to... Paul McCartney afterwards and said, you know, so like, oh, yeah, what a great, great song. Uh, it's like two songs joined together, isn't it? <laughs> right? So he was like, trying to demean. There's another great one where I think Bob Dylan has flown over with the acetates for what's going to be Blonde on Blonde when the Beatles between Rubber Soul and Revolver and they play him uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm-hmm. And um, you could, and like the other people in the room, kind of described his him as like his face dropping and going a bit sort of ashen. Right. And then his uh, his comment after was like, "I get it, so you don't want to be cute anymore." Yeah, tomorrow never knows. That's an example of John being as you know. I was thinking that the because I've been really enjoying Let it, Let It Be Naked recently, and not not listening to it naked, but you know the <laughs> album Let It Be Naked. Um, yeah. And what's so lovely about the later Paul of the Beatles is he, I think Let It Be is just so beautiful and Long and Winding Road because he mm. sounds so vulnerable mm. on those two records, I think. And I think the weird thing is with John and Paul is that they were both quite vulnerable people, maybe, or damaged people slightly. Or And John obviously disguises it with the sarcasm and aggression. Mm. And Paul disguises it by going into whimsy and you know parody, yeah. parody and stuff but then on let it be you get mm. you get a real sense that paul's actually really revealing himself you know maybe that's why it was called naked or something but yeah it's so it's, yeah. so, be- it's so beautiful the long and winding road and it's it's so weird for me as well because uh you know the first time i heard it i thought god i can't believe this is the beatles because the strings are so shit and, yeah yeah and then you realize <laughs> they didn't actually want it to sound that way because you just assume a song is the way the artist wanted it to sound mm. you know but that's anyway. that's right yeah 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 although yeah across the year when my son was a baby the only and he was like such a handful mm. and the only song that would get him to sleep was across the universe oh, so i have john to thank for that that's great yeah. although quite often it was the fiona apple version i would argue and many would disagree that the fiona apple version of across the universe is 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 a is a better version mm. than the original yeah. that fair, I might, I might definitely get... better than the bowie version oh jesus yeah <laughs> quite, quite dodgy. but that's yeah. one of the rare phil specter ones that i actually do prefer to mm. the let it be naked one because that song is so sort of dreamy and ethereal that that mm. those kind of distant wall of sour choirs feel more at home on that record than they do on something mm. like one long and winding road where you can mm. tell that they're working with basically a demo mm, <laughs> yeah 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 and going nuts by the way speaking of the rolling stones mm. um mm. do you know i've told this story twice i told it once on the mark Marin podcast and once mm-hmm. on twitter um mm-hmm. but it's this story about how i uh Ended up uh, nearly dying on Concord with Keith Richards. Do you, have, do you know this story? <laughs> I don't know. Can I tell the story? Yeah, this yeah, a great absolutely. Story. Please do. Yeah. So this was um, uh, the late nineties, I'd say, and I could probably date it, um, but I won't. I'll just be not <laughs> tap, tapping and clicking and a bit, a bit boring. Um, but I got a call. I was writing for. This is such a long time ago. This is probably the mid-90s, because I was mm-hmm. writing for this men's this men's magazine called Loaded, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, I'm slightly embarrassed about. Anyway. <laughs> I um, used to write for Loaded as well. I've, it's not on my CV. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I got a telephone call saying that Chris Evans, the radio presenter, uh, was, was going to be flown out on a private plane to meet Prince 
in Minneapolis, and there's a couple of spare seats on the plane. Uh, did I want one? Uh, so I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I do. And then I got very excited. It's like a Learjet, and it never happened. Chris Evans had some big flouncy falling out with the Prince people and said he wasn't going. So the, so the record company said, you know, OK, the Learjet's fallen through, but we don't want to cancel the whole trip. Uh, so we're going to get you all on Concord. Do you want to go on Concord to meet Prince? So I said, yes. So uh, I turned up at the airport, Heathrow, and I went up to the Concord desk and I said, hi, I'm a passenger on Concord today. And the woman, the BA woman said, um, are you the courier? And I said, <laughs> I said, no, I'm a, I'm a passenger. And she turned to the woman next to her and said, um, find out if he's the courier. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, finally I convinced them I wasn't the courier. I promise you that everything I tell you is entirely true. And if any of it's not true, it's just my memory playing tricks on me. Uh, so I got on the plane. And uh, sat down, and the person came and sat down next to me, my fellow passenger, and I looked over, and it was Keith Richards. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm going to have to spend the next four hours pretending that I don't know Keith Richards is sitting next <laughs> to me. Just have to look straight ahead. And um, uh, Keith Richards poked me in the ribs, <laughs> and we got talking. And at one point, I swear to God, at one point, he said... Uh, I've done everything, man. Uh, <laughs> so I was talking to uh, Keith, I was like, you know, chatting to Keith Richards, and then everybody got a certificate that said, you know, I've been on Concord. Um, but I noticed that Liam Neeson either wasn't offered one or brushed it away, because I did notice, you know, they never gave, they gave me a certificate saying I've been on Concord, but they didn't give Liam Neeson one, which made me think, as I was sitting there, that they somehow just thought Liam Neeson was, and I was like this sort of twat who would want a certificate. <laughs> so I was like sitting there kind of slightly, why don't they give me a certificate for not Liam Neeson? Anyway, the um, plane took off and it reached Mach 2 and there was like a little sign at the front of the cabin that said Mach 2, sort of lit up, had a kind of ripple of applause. <laughs> and then... The plane started like lurching and and slowing down and juddering, and it went like way back down to like Mach one point two or whatever, and there was that sort of ripple of and um, the captain came on the tannoy, but the tannoy was malfunctioning. So the captain <laughs> said, uh, "You may have noticed that we've uh, fuel leak." And then, like, silence, and then more juddering. And then the captain tried it again, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he went, we're going to turn. <laughs> and then that's it. Um, so the person sitting next to me, who turned out to be, I think, the programme controller for, sitting in the row in front, who turned out to be, like, the programme controller for Capital Radio, uh, said, oh, apparently the last time this happened, they gave everybody free £500 Marks and Spencers vouchers. <laughs> and the people on the next seats went, did you hear that? Apparently yeah. they... <laughs> apparently they, we might get Marks and Spencers vouchers. <laughs> and so like, there was like a ripple of that going up and down the thing. And then the captain came out of the cockpit and started addressing people like row by row, and got to our row, and had to look at somebody, so I guess maybe he was intimidated, so he didn't want to look at Keith Richards, so he looked at mm. me. Anyway, you may have noticed that we've slowed down uh, dramatically. Uh, it's because we have a fuel leak, our hydraulic fuel has leaked out. We're going to turn and we're turning around, um, going back to London. We may or may not make it, um, but oh, what okay. I want to say to you is just enjoy the dessert. We'll be giving you dessert. Uh, and at this point, the guy in front turned around, and like whispered at me, the vouchers! Went <laughs> 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 to the vouchers! Uh, anyway, we got back to London. Obviously, I was thinking, God, if we crash for eternity, it's going to be. Because uh, <laughs> Keith said, um, Keith just said, well, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care about this. But I think he's going to be really pissed off. 
I won't hear any word. Mick is at the front. Uh, Mick Jagger. <laughs> I could see Mick Jagger's head pop up from the front of the plane. And uh, look, look for Keith. I'd found him and gave him a very sort of Mick Jagger wave. Like, kind of... Because, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Mick's going to be really pissed off. Uh, I don't care. I said, I said to Keith, I said, you said you've done everything. He said, yeah. No, you're right. I've never flown over Greenland twice in one day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got back. I never got any vouchers. Oh, um, oh yeah, got back. An incredible story. <laughs> the end of the story is that we finally, after like two Concords in a night in New York, made it to Prince's house, wow. and it was like a record launch. And there was somebody from the Sun there or the News of the World. And he said, because I, I, te- I was telling everyone what had happened, mm. um, this journalist said, so I hear you were like sitting next to Keith Richards when Concord, um, you know, had technical problems. And I said, yeah. And he said, were you, he said, were you scared? And I said, oh, yeah, I, was a, I suppose I was a bit scared, yeah. And he said, was, was Keith Richards scared? And I said, no, Keith didn't seem very scared. Anyway, the next day, my wife phoned me and said, have you seen the paper? <laughs> And it was, I was terrified, said Passenger Ronson, but not <laughs> Keith. Keith, <laughs> Keith. Keith just knocked back another Jack Daniels with Coke and enjoyed the ride. <laughs> so that's my, uh, that's the closest I've got to a Beatles story. Yeah, that's that brilliant. is amazing. Oh, yeah. wow. I suppose if you're going to be in that situation, you're sitting next to someone who's immortal is probably, yeah. I imagine, yeah. quite comforting. <laughs> I was going to ask about what your own musical uh, career because you, you, with Frank Sidebottom, you used to do Beatles songs, didn't you? Yeah, we did a, a lot yeah. of them. The Twist yeah. and Shout, uh, you know, your shirt, your really shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what other Beatles songs did you do? God, we did a lot of Queen songs and yeah. some Kylie songs because Frank brought out an album called Frank Sidebottom Salutes the Magic of Freddie Mercury, Queen and Kylie Minogue. <laughs> um, so we used to do most of the songs from that album. Yeah. Frank! Yes! That was one of our songs. God, that detail about the fact that he used to wear the clip on his nose and ended up actually deforming his nose like Yeah, he would at, at the end of the show he would take the head off and he was in agony. Like this clip yeah. was like embedded in his nose. He'd have to like wow. pull it out of his nose. Real pain. That's mad. Oh, the, the thing yeah. I loved about Frank, I, I thought Frank was so amazing, but the, what I loved about it is you really capture just how the awkwardness of getting into music. You know, the bit where mm. Donald Gleeson's going to sh- show them his songs and he can, can't play any song all the way through. It's like, oh, I've got the one that goes a bit like this. And like, yeah. God, I've mm. been, I've done that. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you don't see, you know, to see that so well captured on films. I so just, it was so much fun. I mean, because yeah. basically, you know, the Donald Gleeson character is based on me. Yeah. But, but the absolutely worst version of me that I could think of, you know, <laughs> venal manipulative <laughs> um utterly destructive without even yeah. realizing it a little bit like the main character i think it's it's it always strikes me as a funny coincidence that donald gleason played the lead in the movie the little stranger as well because actually the john character in frank and the character he plays in the little stranger are quite similar these kind mm. of very banal people who through their banality just like ruin everything Mm. <laughs> um, and yeah, so even though, so, so yeah, I, I just sat there for a few years and thought, what would the worst version of me do in this situation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I just, uh, just wrote it. <laughs> it is, I think it's so brilliant because, I mean, mm-hmm. the John character is kind of inclined towards pop and, or he kind of wants to take it in a more poppy way, but they've got this experimentalism mm. and, Yes. It's sort of in the in the film, the band is kind of almost naturally experimental in the way outsider artist, outsider yeah. art is. You know, I, I really wanted the band. This is why we diverged um, from Frag Sidebottom mm. because mm. I just couldn't see how it would work if mm. if it was a comedy band, like yeah. if the band didn't mm. take themselves seriously. Mm. Uh, so I wanted 
the kind of Frank Sidebottom experience that I had as the keyboard mm. player filtered through what if it hadn't been a comedy band, what if it had been a sort of mix of yeah. uh, craft work, you know, who took yeah. themselves very, very seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Captain Beefheart, that sort of culty yes. thing where they're all off at the house together, like eating, they're only allowed to eat like a handful of yeah. beans a day. Yeah. <laughs> and then Daniel Johnson having a singer who's got, you know, serious mental yeah. health conditions. So, yeah, yeah. so yeah. I, was, I was sort of trying to imagine what, what would have happened if if the Frank Sidebottom band had been that. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that that's why it wasn't Frank's music, was yeah. because yeah. I just I just thought it would be much funnier if the band took themselves extremely seriously. Yeah. You know, what about what are my most enduring Beatles memories? Is I was about 14 or 15 and I got the White Album for my birthday mm. and I just sort of lay in the dark listening to it over and over again and I just mm. remember this is a really incredibly vivid memory from my childhood I'm lying in bed with the lights off listening to the White Album my cat was asleep on my stomach and we were both like you know drifting in and out of sleep and then when Helter Skelter came on, both me and the cat just like leapt into the <laughs> Because um, whatever the song is on before Helter Skelter, it really lulls you, you know. It's, mm. I, I can't mm. remember what the song is before Helter Skelter, but the I way... it might this... be Cry Baby Cry. Might, mm. Right. But no, the way think. that the song comes in, it's like a, you know, it's just like a kind of sawmill or something, yeah, you yeah. know. And I just remember the two of us, me and the cat, just leaping and then both at the same time realising it's OK, it's just a song. And then we both <laughs> relaxed again. Yeah. Yeah, Sexy great. Sadie, it is not crybaby. Yeah. Sexy Sadie. <laughs> yeah. so I think Sexy Sadie really um, tails off. Mm. And which kind is why the kind of... comes in so... So strongly, yeah. So yeah. was that your? Is, is that still your number one record then? The White, White Album. Album. Actually, I've not heard it. I've not listened to it in years. Um, what more recently? I was never into the early Beatles. Never into the pre-Rubber mm. Soul Beatles. But because of reading the Craig Brown book, I've kind of gone back and watched a whole lot of old concert footage, lap mm. footage that um, Ron Howard shot for eight days a week and so on. Yeah, right. yeah. So I'm beginning to get a good appreciation of the really mm. early records now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, actually, if I think about it, the, the Beatles record I listen to most of all is probably Abbey Road. That's, mm. that's, that's where that I seems to well, be. That's, that's the key Paul choice. is dead text, isn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think a lot of people settle into Abbey Road as, as being like their favourite Beatles album? Is that yeah, there's you? like, I think it's, for me, it's Abbey Road, White Album, Revolver are probably the, Cla- the classic three for me, I think. Yeah, yeah. not Sgt. Peppers. No, I don't know why. I just, mm. I think, yeah, I don't... I think the Abbey Road maybe is one of those things that people grow to like more because it's Paul Heavy. Mm. Yeah. Going back yeah. to the, you know, that especially yeah. the, the sort of medley and the stuff that people really love. Mm. And... Um, yeah. Have you ever read Waiting, speaking of Abbey Road, have you, do you know the book Waiting for the Beatles? No, no. It's funny. It's like it's almost like I dreamed it because it's almost impossible to find online. Mm. Um, it was written by one of the Apple Scruffs. Right. This, this girl who came over from America to just like to sleep in a sleeping bag outside Paul's house, and mm. she inter- she strongly intimates that George was sleeping with some of the Apple Scruffs. Right. And, yeah, yeah. And she gets they all get invited in to listen to the song Apple Scruffs that George recorded in tribute to them on mm. All Things Must Pass. But it's a wonderful book. Um, no, definitely it's not. one of her friends, apparently, who Paul wrote. She came in through the bathroom. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's a wonderful book, and it's surprising that it's just vanished from history. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It could be a movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They all sing. Um, they all got invited in to sing in Hey Jude, I think, as well. They, they did the na na nas. Oh, the Apple Scruffs were scrubs. there. Yeah, oh, I didn't so, know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
so that was the fantastic John Ronson. Um, what a lovely chat, what a generous man for joining us. That was a real highlight of my year, being able to talk to him. He really is a bit of a sort of literary hero of mine. I tried to not to gush too much, and I tried not to talk about Randy Newman too much. Um, but, yeah, what well, that was fantastic. It was great. I think the other well, thing I love about John Ronson, he's just so curious, isn't he? And he's so kind of... He's so interested in pe- things and people, no matter how strange... Or yeah, unusual, it's I guess. and that the sort of level in, of enthusiasm for pretty much everything is yeah. uh, so infectious and yes, definitely uh, inspiring. I was listening to him talk and then kept sort of forgetting I was doing a podcast. I kept thinking, am, am I just listening to a John Ronson podcast? I was like, oh no, I've got to say <laughs> something now. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely brilliant. I hope you yeah. enjoyed that as much as we did. Um, and you can go to give us a rating if you enjoyed that show on Apple Podcasts or Acast. Uh, Five star ratings really do help the show. So if you have enjoyed it, Go and give us a little visit and click on the old five stars. That would be lovely. Mm. Um, So we'll be back next week with uh, another show with a great guest, actually. One of my most enjoyable records we've done so far with Johnny White, Really, Really. Johnny White's a very, very interesting comedian and musician. And we had a really, really interesting chat. Uh, We talked kind of a lot about production stuff, ended up going down a kind of alleyway talking about steve albini for quite a bit (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and he was very very good at articulating the kind of childhood memories of the beatles like what he thought when you know those strange associations you'd have at the time when you first saw the beatles and how scary it could be and i've been thinking about that a lot recently because Mm. i sort of i forget that some of it was quite sort of dark and upsetting (laughs) at a very young age yeah i didn't i didn't realize as well that I mean, obviously, this is the case, but like when a lot of the Sergeant Peppery stuff came out, the fans, a lot of fans hated it as well. Really? Just, yeah. yeah. Oh, like, right. Just write, I stop, suppose you would if you, yeah, uh, you know, stop writing weird anything songs that and radical. Like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the kid A of 1967. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So thank you so much for listening. If you got to this uh, part, we've realised that about uh, 25 to 30% of people listen to this little bit at the end. So if you are listening, you're definitely our favourite people. Mm. And maybe one day we'll tell you some secrets that the other normos won't hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thank you so much. We'll be back next week and uh, have a nice week. Cheers. Bye. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.